Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well, no matter where you live in the world. But uh, one thing I do know is that it's certainly great to be back on the air, like I always uh, say in each uh, podcast uh, episode that um, that I'm uh, doing. It's always good to be on the air with all of you, my uh, 101 uh, listeners. Um you know, it wasn't that long ago I was on the air last, and when we were on the air last, we were uh, learning um, some uh, more uh, unique uh, information about a topic or really about a subject that, you know, most of us um, knew in terms of the uh, of the uh, Northwest, in terms of how the Northwest uh, Territory might have come into being, but that was pretty much all we knew. We didn't really know all the other um, ins and outs. And from what I've uh, gathered so far, uh, based upon uh, the plays per uh, four episodes that I've done with this uh, book topic uh, podcast series, To the Victory with No Name, The Native American Defeat of the First American Army, I can really see for myself firsthand that a lot of you are um, very intrigued by this. A lot of you are learning information that uh, was not probably taught to you before. Uh, But a lot of that could be due to the fact that uh, textbooks from years ago simply did not uh, teach us the full um, nine yards or didn't teach us the true uh, behind-the-scenes story of how um, the United States as a nation expanded as a result of uh, the Northwest Territory. And I think that's Im- it's important now that it's uh, taught because, you know, it's one thing to add states into the Union, but it's not like putting a puzzle together. You know, it's, you know, yes, putting a puzzle together can be challenging, especially if it's um, between, say, 300 and 500 pieces, or even 100 for that matter. But even, but even adding states into the Union is a work of art unto itself. So uh, for our uh, young government, even in, even in the uh, start of the post-Revolutionary War era, going into the time of... Uh, creating a new uh, system of governing, being that of the uh, U.S. Constitution, and to establishing our uh, modern-day system of government, there were so many unknowns um, that still remained out there. And what I mean by remaining out there was what lied uh, to the West. All of that uh, territory, what we know is the Northwest. In other words, it wasn't just going to be handed to us. Sure, it certainly does state in the Constitution that under um, Article 1, Section 8, uh, Clause 3, that the federal government does have the right to make treaties with nations, including um, Indian nations as well. But but even uh, treaties themselves are vague. So when we think of treaties, we often think of, you know, matters involving foreign countries from overseas. But there was a time when it also involved dealing with foreign nations right here in America, and those foreign nations meaning um, uh, Indian uh, nations in terms of how we were going to uh, be able to uh, coexist with those Indian nations uh, to avoid uh, any means of war. But of course, no matter um, how great treaties appear, sadly treaties uh, were not always meant to be, and that is the unfortunate thing about um, about uh, from a historical aspect with regards to uh, how treaties were uh, often, um, they weren't often um, meant to be what they were supposed to. In other words, yes, they were. Uh, both parties agreed to something on paper, 
but as uh, one generation passed the torch on to another, the next generations often did not um, view those treaties with the same um, integrity as the previous generation might have. Um, so this westward expansion, as great as it was to uh, make the United States into a bigger nation, westward expansion does have consequences. And in this uh, podcast segment episode, we're going to learn exactly uh, whom the directors uh, are for the uh, Ohio Company of Associates. We will also learn uh, what exactly that the uh, Confederation Congress uh, came up with in July of 1787. Uh, we will also learn um, about some other important things with regards to um, what had taken place in July of 1787. We will also um, learn um, about differences involving uh, the Ohio Company along with another um, company that was um, craving land in the same way that the Ohio Company was. Uh, we will also um, learn um, about some other individuals whom held uh, stock in the Ohio Company and why their um, presence should be made known with um, with this whole uh, land movement going west into the um, Northwest uh, Territory. So let's be prepared for our uh, first uh, leadoff question to um, the second part of this uh, two-part uh, series in um, the victory with no name of the Native American defeat of the First American Army by, by Colin G. Calloway. The second part here uh, per this uh, chapter that we're uh, focusing still on is uh, building a nation on Indian land. So here we go with uh, part two of two. So here's our first leadoff question. Whom went on to serve as directors for the Ohio Company of Associates? Anybody want to take a guess? Most of you probably have never heard of their names before. But if you haven't, I'm not going to hold it against you, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, give you their names now because you never know when you might be reading about them somewhere else down the road. Uh, their names are the following. General Rufus Putnam, General Samuel Parsons, Reverend Manasseh Cutler, Manasseh spelled M-A-N-A-S-S-E-H. Quite a unique name to say the least, but, uh, but nonetheless, those are uh, the names of uh, the directors from the Ohio Company of Associates. The two that I found to be most interesting were uh, Rufus Putnam and uh, Manasseh Cutler. Not that uh, General uh, Samuel Parsons was worth, not that he wasn't worth learning about, but I just found uh, Reverend Cutler and uh, General Rufus Putnam really worth uh, sharing. Uh, Rufus Putnam is a native of Massachusetts. He served um, as a leading served as a leading uh, force um, military career that uh, dated back to the Seven Years' War, being the uh, French and Indian War. And he um, also served as an engineer in the British Army's uh, 60th Foot, or I should say the Royal American Regiment. He entered into the profession of surveying, including uh, land speculating, he had very strong ties to George Washington during the Revolutionary War. As for uh, Reverend Manasseh Cutler, he was a one-time lawyer, doctor, merchant, along with serving as a chaplain. You know, when we think of chaplains, we think of them as uh, ministers. So he was a chaplain within the Continental Army. He viewed westward expansion as an opportunity for proper settlement. 
He sold shares in the Ohio company to top government officials from uh, such men as Arthur St. Clair, president of the Confederation Congress, to William Dewar, the Confederation's uh, Treasury Board Secretary. And I'll uh, talk a little bit more about those two particular uh, men here in a little bit. But something else that I did forget to mention a moment ago with regards to Rufus Putnam, believe it or not, folks, he is directly related to a woman named Ann Putnam. And why is she important? Well, the Putnams of Massachusetts date back uh, to the early 17th century. And for Miss Ann Putnam, she was alive during the infamous uh, 1692 Salem witchcraft trials. I've read some stuff on Ann Putnam, and while um, I believe her life was spared, in other words, she was, uh, I don't believe she was one of the 19 um, men and women whom were uh, sadly uh, executed or they were uh, hung for being accused of being witches when it, when it turns out that they weren't. But nonetheless, uh, Rufus Putnam is a direct descendant of um, Ann Putnam. He is also direct, directly related to uh, General Israel Putnam, who uh, fought during the uh, American Revolutionary War. And there is a, a village in Connecticut called uh, Putnam, Connecticut, which is uh, directly related to uh, Rufus uh, Putnam's family. So uh, what did the uh, Confederation Congress come up with in July 1787 at the same time the delegates were attending the Constitutional Convention? So, you know, it's often easy to assume that when delegates met in Philadelphia to create this new government, that they were... Uh, pretty much abolishing the Confederation Congress at the same time. Actually, they weren't. In other words, they were um, allowing the current state of government to still operate because, you know, we did, you know, we needed some form of government to be functioning, but we just needed to come up with a better system, given that the Confederation uh, Congress, not so much its its leaders, but perhaps the guidelines in the Confederation Congress were so weak that men like George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, uh, John Jay, just to name a few, they all realized that, look, we've got to come up with something better. And if we don't come up with something better now, we're going to have total anarchy when it's all said and done with. So, yes, this Confederation Congress is still existing but it would be fair to say that there are uh, members of the Confederation Congress who know that um, that there's a that there is some likelihood. They don't know the percentage of it, but it might be fair to say that they know at best there's a 50 percent likelihood that the government that they are currently uh, operating under is going to be uh, drastically changed um, in ways that they have never envisioned before. But at the same time, they also are wondering, okay, if this does get changed, is it going to stay, how long is it going to last? Would it last another five, would it last five to ten years at best? Or is it going to be replaced at some other point down the road if it's not meant to be? Well, even delegates in Philadelphia at the Constitutional Convention were wondering the same thing, that whatever we come up with that's different, how effective is it going to be? Well, as I've said before, and I can say it again in this uh, I've said it from other podcast episodes, but it's like what Benjamin Franklin said. It's not the best document, but it's the best we were it's the best we were able to come up with. 
we're going to call this government a republic, but it's up to you all as to whether or not you can keep it. That is not only for you and for you uh, people in the present generation, but how do you pass that torch down in the future? So what did exactly the Confederation Congress come up with in July 1787 at the same time the delegates were attending uh, the Constitutional Convention? Uh, the Confederation Congress established another land ordinance, better known as the Northwest Ordinance. Hang tight for just a moment, folks. Well, so here we go. The Northwest Ordinance, the most famous of ordinances. In the midst of the Confederation Congress enacting a newer ordinance, Reverend Manasseh Cutler, he did a lot of uh, networking behind the scenes, folks. Is that a good thing? Yes. But when we learn um, here shortly about some of his uh, business dealings, we're probably going to have to be reminded that Business dealings, as great as they can be, aren't always a good thing because, you know, one group is going to benefit, the other group won't. But then we're left to wonder, is this business dealing or are these business dealings truly legit practices? So here we go. Manasseh Cutler went to New York as an agent for the Ohio Company, given that he is a director he helped persuade Congress to remove the 1785 ordinance provisions regarding surveying and division of land into squares before getting sold. In other words, maybe it sounds like Manasseh Cutler is not interested in how the process is really supposed to work. Maybe he's looking for a way to, um, how do you call it, um, cut corners you know, to speed things up, but by doing so in a non-formal um, manner. So, yes, yeah, so he's um, requesting that uh, Congress remove the 1785 uh, ordinance provisions regarding the surveying and division of land into squares before getting sold. He worked closely with uh, such men as Arthur St. Clair and Edward Carrington, who is Edward Carrington? He was the uh, land committee chairman in purchasing um, a large stretch of uh, land. Well, I take it back. Um, Manasseh Cutler, he worked very closely with Arthur St. Clair and Edward uh, Carrington, who was a land committee chairman. And by doing so, uh, Manasseh Cutler uh, was able to purchase a large stretch of land along the Northwest Territory where settlements could be established. Okay, per Manasseh Cutler's dealings, folks, buyers were required to pay half a million dollars when the contract got executed. Do you think most people have that kind of money? No. Maybe 1% or less, but buyers, I mean, these are, okay, the speculators, these are the guys who have the money to... I don't know if they have even anywhere close to half a million. Some of them do, but they have enough money to uh, spend. And in many ways, they have enough money to spend like there's no tomorrow. So the buyers are required to pay half a million when the contract got executed. And any balance uh, left over, those amounts were to be paid once the surveys got officially completed. So it looks like there still is somewhat of a process here, but it's been um, altered 
perhaps to um, benefit one person's particular interest, including those below him uh, who are along whom are going on the same bandwagon as um, Manasseh Cutler is. Now, uh, we mentioned about what's his face, uh, William Dewar. Do, what do we know about William Dewar? His last name is spelled D-U-E-R. I don't know if many of you probably have even heard of William Dewar, and that's okay because I didn't know anything about this guy until I uh, read the book. But uh, for starters, he was born in England around the year 1747, and he came to America in 1768, where he bought land in the Hudson Valley, and he sided with the Continentals, or I should say Patriots, during the Revolutionary War, and went on to become a member of the Continental Congress. Whom do you think William Dewar, um, but let me ask you this, do you think William Dewar had um, some strong political connections? Yes, he sure did. He um, had strong political and business connections to a fella named Alexander Hamilton, who was also a Revolutionary War veteran, and Mr. Hamilton served in George Washington's inner circle. As for William Dewar, he served under um, Alexander Hamilton as the assistant secretary within the Treasury Department. Because remember, folks, Alexander Hamilton was our nation's uh, first uh, Treasury uh, Secretary. Uh, as for, also for William Dewar, he was a business partner to War Secretary Henry Knox, whom was one of George Washington's uh, closest advisors within that uh, inner circle of high-ranking officers and generals. So for William Dewar, I mean, he certainly, he may not have been... Um, in the um, he may not have served in the American Revolutionary War, but it certainly has um, paid for him to have had um, established some very solid uh, connections, uh, most notably with uh, some uh, cabinet level uh, members uh, serving directly under the President of the United States, being that of uh, Mr. George Washington. His ex well, of course, they wanted to say His Excellency, but uh, George Washington said, "No, we're not going to." have any uh, phrases or sayings like His Excellency or His Majesty because, you know, we fought a long war to keep kings out of um, America. July 20th, uh, now, uh, before I get to this next part here, um, War Secretary Henry Knox uh, was involved with the uh, Ohio Company. Uh, he was a, um, a stockholder, so he owned a fair number of shares in the uh, Ohio Company of Associates. Now, um, what's important about July 20th, 1787, is that Manasseh Cutler and William Dewar each partook in a top-level business deal. This is one of these business deals that you e that's either going to be a boom or a bust, and you better hope that it's going to be a boom. It's th This is one of these uh, occasions where you've got to get it right, and if you don't get it right, you may not have another opportunity uh, coming your way any time in the foreseeable future. So for uh, Manasseh Cutler and William Dewar, they each engaged in a top-level business deal, resulting in Manasseh Cutler providing William Dewar, the leader of the Skiado or the Skiado Company, with an extra 3.5 million acres, 3.5 million land acres, folks, enabling Dewar to fulfill the double role of 
in-between person, or I should say a mediator, between the Ohio Company and Congress, the Confederation Congress, folks. You know, uh, Manasseh Cutler, I, I mentioned earlier how he um, would be uh, partaking in a business deal, and we're left to wonder, is this business deal a legit business um, uh, practice, or is it going to be something that's going to end up being crooked? You know, too often when we hear of uh, stuff that's uh, shady in today's times, that's not to say that shady business dealings have been going on since uh, the beginning of time, but um, but when we hear about it more and more, we're left to wonder, is there any such thing as a fair business deal where everyone on each side truly does benefit, but doing so for the right reasons? Well, anyways, uh, for, for uh, Reverend Manasseh Cutler, he won support over congressional members during dinners and private gatherings. So he was able to have dinners with, um, with congressional members, and if there were differences, he was able to find ways to get the, those individuals to put their feelings aside and uh, work for the greater good. And all that, you know, we could use a little bit more of that in, in, uh, in Congress in today's time, not to get political, but um, maybe it's fair to say that members of Congress need to learn more about uh, about the challenges our forefathers faced and how they were able to compromise when when maybe they didn't feel like doing it, but they knew they had to do it for the better of the uh, nation, especially in the early years of the nation's uh, early uh, years as a republic. So, um, yes, Manasseh Cutler did win support over congressional members during dinners and private gatherings. At the same time, he threatened those who weren't on board with his land proposal schemes. So if you were not willing to go along with Manasseh Cutler, let's just say that, you know, John Smith had no interest. Well, let's say John Smith did have interest, but he didn't want to do it in the manner that uh, Manasseh Cutler proposed in terms of uh, methods or strategies uh, going along with, um, with the uh, idea. If you opposed the uh, game plan, then Manasseh Cutler probably would have chewed you out for it. He probably would have gotten into your face and said, okay, if you don't like the way I'm doing things, then I'll just see to it that uh, you don't get support um, per these other requests that you're needing, um, that you're needing, uh, say, more funding on or that you want to see go through. So, you know, we see, we hear of politicians intimidating other politicians. We hear of uh, politicians, you know, intimidating um, people from uh, organizations. I mean, regardless of political party, uh, it's fair to say that um, political uh, intimidation tactics have been going on since the beginning of time, not just in America, but elsewhere throughout the world when it comes to uh, getting something your way. You know, yes, we all want to have it our way, but uh, one thing I've come to realize is that we can't always have it our way whenever we want to. Even when we have all these modern-day conveniences uh, 24-7, you know, we still have to be reminded that even if we do have modern-day conveniences, we still can't always have it our way. Well, yes, for uh, Reverend Cutler, he certainly did threaten those whom were not on board with his land proposal schemes. Why is July 27th, 1787 important? Okay, one week after uh, Manasseh Cutler and William Dewar engage in this top-level business deal, 
but why is it that July 27th of 1787 is considered to be important? Congress officially passed the ordinance, that is the uh, infamous 1787 ordinance, and ordered the Board of Treasury to complete a written signed agreement via contract where the Ohio Company would receive a sum of 5 million acres of land. However, the Ohio Company would keep 1.5 million per its own uh, personal assets while reserving 3.5 million for private dealings. So, in other words, this 5 million acres wasn't going to be used uh, for one uh, settlement or for one uh, particular um, spot in the northwest region, but it's going to be divvied up. One and a half million is going to be kept by the actual Ohio company themselves, but they're going to reserve three and a half million of it for private dealings. And when we think of private dealings, how about, you know, non-disclosed matters? Private dealing affairs, being that of the three and a half million acres, were reserved for William Dewar and his business partners whom obtained status to the land and in return created the Schiato Company. Schiato, Schiato, spelled S-C-I-O-T-O. I, you know, if I lived in Ohio, in Ohio, um, I would have to ask, or if I was visiting Ohio, rather, I should say, I would have to ask someone, how do you pronounce it? Schiato or Schiato? One way or another, when I do learn it, I'll make sure to tell you all uh, so this way you all will uh, know for sure how it's uh, properly pronounced whenever you are visiting Ohio, so none of us get ridiculed. <laughs> now, uh, the uh, in case any of you are wondering what um, skiado or skiado means, it's an American Indian word referring to deer. How about the animal deer, folks? Manasseh Cutler... What did he do, folks? I mean, obviously, he would have been involved with this. Um, he would have benefited from all of this that Congress um, had given that Congress had passed the ordinance, and they passed it pretty quickly. Manasseh Cutler pulled off a real estate deal like none other before in the United States. This was the first of its kind, folks. For one, the majority, the majority of the time that this was all going on, folks, Congress wasn't in session. So it's almost as if Manasseh Cutler had bribed his way through to get um, some dealings passed, but doing so perhaps without a two-thirds majority body present in Congress. Not everyone in Congress has to be present, but you probably would have needed at least a two-thirds majority just to get this cleared. But not even a two-thirds majority was there. So, you know, believe it or not, folks, yes, Manasseh Cutler, you know, pulled off um, what we might think of as the deal of the um, 18th century, especially in the post-revolutionary war world. But what kind of guidelines were incorporated into the 1787 Northwest Ordinance? I find all of this very interesting, uh, I do have to be reminded of the fact that just because we've established this Northwest Ordinance, it doesn't mean that everybody gets to move out west when they feel like it on their own um, time. Remember, I had mentioned from an earlier podcast how in order for westward expansion to take place, it has to be done in an orderly uh, fashion. There has to be a process. Not everybody can um, be catered to right away. 
But at the same time, you know, there are people already living out in the Northwest um, Territory. And I do believe that um, General Samuel uh, Parsons had said that those whom were already living out there were of a uh, different sort. In other words, they were the type of people whom did not respect authority. They were the type of people whom whom were out there for I, me, myself reasons. They, he viewed these individuals as the type of people whom were, you know, playing with fire. They just didn't have respect for anything. It was, it was, it was either their way or nobody else's way. But at the same time, look at someone like um, Reverend Manasseh Cutler. You know, minister, we think he's supposed to be um, doing uh, good for God, but yet he's doing something that is uh, crooked, a little shady. He's getting a business deal enacted without the full support of, um, without a full majority support of Congress. It could be fair to say that Manasseh Cutler is one of those people that we would refer to in today's time as the following, so close but so far away. We think we know everything there is to know about him, but we may not know what's going on behind closed doors. So, anyways, what kind of guidelines do you think were incorporated into the 1787 Northwest Ordinance? Well, for starters, the Northwest Territory um, would get its own territorial government, including a governor. Secondly, once population got around 5,000, the territory would receive an elected assembly along with a court. Okay, so you've got we've got a we've got some criteria uh, to establish here, folks. So once the population is around five thousand, the territory is going to get an elected assembly. We're going to have um, a legislative uh, body and a court. So in other words, if we have a legal dispute that we need to uh, settle and it can't be settled outside of court, we've tried other avenues, but now we know that the last resort is is going to an actual uh, courtroom. So this is what we're going to get. Um, the ordinance also provided proportionate representation, representing people per equal number of levels within a region, or basically representing people based upon um, based upon the numbers uh, per the uh, population. So it almost has like some findings, especially with a uh, with a uh, proportionate representation, where. Um, Roger Sherman's uh, famous uh, Great Compromise came about at the Constitutional Convention where he said that uh, all states, regardless of size, would get two senators and that uh, representation in the House would be based upon, uh, would be based upon uh, proportions or um, would be based upon uh, populations. So in other words, yes, one state would have uh, more, let's say, um, representative seats than the other, like, for example, uh, Pennsylvania would probably have more than, say, um, Maryland or Delaware, but the bottom line is that um, they are still equal in a sense in that uh, no matter how big or small your state is, you're still getting two senators. So that's where the uh, Great Compromise came into play. How about um, freedom of by uh, going into the Northwest uh, Territory? It also, another um, provision it included was freedom of religion, trial by jury. Some of the um, measures that we uh, can associate with in the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments, like, you know, freedom of religion, trial by jury. How about protection against unlawful imprisonment, being that of a habeas corpus? 
So the 1787 ordinance promoted education and schools to prohibiting slavery, folks. Slavery was prohibited in the Northwest Territory, and there is somebody we have to thank for that. He was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. His name was Rufus King of Massachusetts. Rufus King is the one who proposed that no slavery was to be allowed um, into the Northwest Territory. And while, yes, that subject was a very, very sensitive issue, Southerners were willing to compromise and say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go along with uh, slavery not being allowed in that Northwest Territory. That is, it will not be allowed in Ohio, in what we now know as Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin. So... You know, we have to remember that when um, delegates from the South, North, and the Middle uh, colonies are all together in Philadelphia, they are having to make compromises, and they may not be the most perfect of compromises. They may be, they involve sensitive matters, but they did make compromises. They may not have, some might say they may not have been the grandest, but at the time it was the best they could come up with. So we have to, you know, be reminded of that. So yes, uh, the 1787 ordinance not only promoted education in schools, it prohibited slavery. And once the population within a territory got around 60,000 people, folks, the territory could file a request for statehood. So, you know, not to get ahead of the game, but when we uh, go to the year 1803, which state becomes the first in the Northwest to have not only reached a, a population of around 60,000 and over, but by doing so, it, could, it was able to request, um, it was able to file a request for statehood, Ohio. So when we think of the Northwest Territory and the first state that was actually admitted to the Union from that region, think of Ohio. Whereas the Ohio Company planned on selling land to American settlers, what made the Scioto Company different? The Scioto Company intended to sell vast sums of land to foreigners, most notably Frenchmen. I'm going to mention more about that here uh, later, probably in another uh, podcast uh, segment episode. But uh, nonetheless, um, it is worth mentioning that there are some uh, differences, to say the least. Um, Arthur St. Clair went on to become the new uh, Northwest Territory Governor, he owned over a thousand Ohio uh, company uh, acres. He was born in um, Scotland around 1737 in a middle ranking family. He attended the University of Edinburgh. He purchased or bought a commission, I should say, in the Royal American Regiment at age 23, fought in the French and Indian War, but after war's end, or really, I should say, just before the war ended. I, I take it back. Uh, so right before the war ended, he married um, a woman named Phoebe Bayard. B-A-Y-A-R-D, Bayard. Why is she important? Well, she's the niece to James Bowden, who was the governor of Massachusetts. And the Bowdens were a very prominent family, so it never hurts to marry someone of uh, high-profile status. They would, uh, the family would go on to live in western Pennsylvania where he served as a clerk, surveyor, to recorder of deeds. Arthur St. Clair's role as the Northwest Territory governor gave him the power to take charge 
of the militia, appoint magistrates, set up new counties and townships. And in 1788, Arthur St. Clair and his family moved west, where he introduced territorial uh, government in a place called Marietta around in July of 1788. I'm sure some of you are probably already thinking what I know with regards to this place called Marietta. I'll tell you some more here in a moment. So what's unique about April 17th of 1788? Rufus Putnam, along with a group of Revolutionary War veterans, arrived at a merging point section where the Ohio and Muskinigam rivers joined one another. This resulted in their establishing the first European-American official settlement in the Northwest Territory. The Ohio, uh, Ohio Company director Rufus Putnam established this new settlement in the Northwest Territory as Marietta. Marietta was a community made up of 52 families, including 157 men, along the Muskinigam River from Fort Harmer. Marietta was named for Marie Antoinette, whom was the Queen of France. And uh, what a very uh, nice uh, fitting, to say the least. And we have to be reminded of the fact that um, France was the United States' chief ally during the uh, Revolutionary War without the French. I believe it's fair to say that um, no matter how strong our efforts might have been, we probably would have been uh, forced to have uh, resubmitted ourselves to uh, becoming uh, subjects to um, a tyrant, not only who lived 3,000 miles across the ocean, but a tyrant whom, um, whom uh, reigned so uh, fiercely that, um, that his subjects were no simply uh, lacked uh, value, uh, lacked respect. So in other words, uh, without the aid of the French, there's really no way that we could have won this war. I mean, yes, you know, one could say that we might have been able to have done it, but in terms of in terms of uh, greater needs of military supplies to um, clothing, to uh, proper training, you know, without those things, I just don't know how we might have really been able to have defeated uh, the world's mightiest empire at the time. So, yes, uh, Marietta, Ohio, and for those of you who aren't sure where Marietta is located, I mean, yes, it is located um, along the um, Ohio and Muskinigam rivers, but Marietta, Ohio is right near uh, Parkersburg, uh, West Virginia. Basically, Parkersburg and Marietta are right along the Ohio-West Virginia line, in case you're... Uh, in case any of you are wondering exactly where uh, Marietta is located. So um, Marietta um, was intended to look like an equivalent uh, New England town or village, but not everyone whom arrived uh, shared those same concepts. Lands where the Ohio um, Company had, in, had invested money in were within the Muskinigam Valley, and some of you, I'm sure, are wondering, what, what exactly does Muskinigam mean? It is said to come from the Shawnee word Mishkikwam, meaning swampy ground. Muskinigam Valley is a district or a region between the Skiado and Little Miami. Was senior U.S. Army officer Josiah Harmer an owner of stock in the Ohio Company? Yes, he was. 
1789, Josiah Harmer went about building a fort in southern Ohio at a place at what was then known as Losantaville, which sought to protect settlers across the Ohio River in Kentucky, or or at the time it was Kentucky Territory, but what we now know as today is present-day Kentucky. And remember, folks, uh, Ohio does border Kentucky. As a matter of fact, uh, Ohio borders... How many states do you all think border Ohio? Um, I know the number. Well, I'll tell you the names of the states and the number. Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Kentucky, Indiana, Michigan. Five states. Two of those states were are states that were once part of the Northwest Territory, Indiana and Michigan. So uh, I feel like it's, you know, an important priority to try to remember how many states border, you know, a particular state because if we don't know that then we are missing out on a lot. I think it's easy to forget and even easy to take for granted just how many states border a particular state uh, because you never know uh, You never know when you might be having to look on a map just as a reminder, but it also is just a good way to, be, uh, to retain good uh, geographical uh, knowledge, to say the least. January of 1790, uh, the Northwest Northwest Territorial Governor Arthur St. Clair named the fort at Losantaville with Harmer's consent as Fort Washington in honor of George Washington. January of 1790 also saw St. Clair rename Losantaville by calling it Cincinnati in honor of the Roman Emperor Cincinnatus and for the Society of the Cincinnati as well. Most historians know that uh, Cincinnatus, not only was he a Roman emperor, but he was an officer. And historians know that George Washington and Cincinnatus were a lot alike in terms of uh, holding the same virtues, um, the way they led their armies. Many of, historians know that both men shared many uh, unique um, characteristics uh, in terms of uh, officer uh, traits. So, yes, uh, Losantaville went on to become uh, Cincinnati. So whenever um, we hear Cincinnati, Ohio, we can uh, think of um, how it got its name, and it was named after the Roman emperor, uh, Cincinnatus. And there are villages in the United States. Uh, I know there's a place in New York State known as uh, Cincinnatus, just outside of Syracuse, named in honor of the emperor, Roman emperor, uh, Cincinnatus. Now, um, for Fort Washington and Cincinnati, they were home to over 300 men defending the greater area. Uh, The area surrounding Fort Washington and Cincinnati really became a hub for civilians, hunters, traders. Well, in order to um, have a well-fortified fort, you also have to be able to make sure that you can get people coming and going through whom are coming into those areas for uh, legit um, reasons. They're not coming there for leisurely purposes, folks. So in other words, there's really no such thing as uh, taking a fun day trip in 1790. If you're going somewhere for the day um, and and it's not anything leisure-related, it's definitely for business purposes. Now, was land speculation a risky endeavor? Oh, there's no question of about it, folks. Land speculation was a very, very risky endeavor. Think of it as, in some ways as like gambling, or, or think of it as just taking a, uh, a big risk knowing that either it's going to be a 50% chance, 
50% chance that you're going to be successful or there's a 50% chance that this is going to uh, end in uh, failure to where um, you might not be able to recoup your losses. It could take it could take years before you could get it all back. I mean, you know, I've never been to a, um, well, I mean, I've never been to Las Vegas before. And, you know, yes, there are people who like to gamble. If you have the money to gamble, that's great. I mean, if you're worth $25 million and you lost $1,000 at the blackjack table, I think you would be okay. Sure, it would suck to lose $1,000, but you're still not hurting. If you're the average Joe, um, and you gamble away one to $3,000 at the uh, blackjack table, it's going to take a while before you can recoup those losses, before you can uh, fully get back what you've lost. So, you know, land speculation, it's almost like a form of gambling of sorts. But yes, it is a risky endeavor. Uh, for one, uh, speculators feared that once the government opened Western land offices, land prices would get reduced which meant losing um, their full value. Secondly, time itself wasn't always assured, meaning speculators themselves weren't allotted enough time to resell their lands where creditors could back off. Creditors were constantly monitoring to demanding any or all outstanding debts, which got paid first before everything else, or before anything else. So... This delay in reselling lands for speculators also meant ruin as the practice of land speculation often seen as matters involving borrowed time. Transactions or dealings could either make or break as speculators could uh, either make or break a speculator's deadline given uh, situations with Indians were so unpredictable. So in other words, it's not like, oh, can you give me another month or two and I can repay you back this loan? No, um, we don't have that kind of time. So think about it. They're constantly on borrowed time, but just because you may have time today, it doesn't mean that you're going to have the same kind of time um, come tomorrow or a week after. The markets change. Did uh, one of Governor St. Clair's duties involve making treaties with Indians? Yes. January 9th of 1789 saw Governor St. Clair partake in the Treaty of Fort Harmer near present-day Marietta, which involved representatives from, from such Indian nations as the Iroquois Six Nations, as well as Indians from the Wyandotte, Delaware, Ottawa, Chippewa, Sauk, and Potawatomi nations. Treaty negotiations or I should say the talks at Fort Harmer, uh, failed to resolve the most important injustices, being settlement of New Englanders within the Firelands area of the Western Reserve. And the Firelands region is uh, northern Ohio, what we know is uh, Sandusky, um, anywhere on the outskirts of Sandusky, like Marblehead or, say, Port Clinton, and uh, areas of the Western Reserve, uh, such areas just west of uh, present-day Cleveland. So, yes, one of the injustices being the settlement of New Englanders within the Firelands area of Western Reserve. This was a, a violation because it um, the settlement encroached into territory already set aside for Indian tribes already established along those reserved land dwellings. 
Indian tribes that were not present at Josiah Harmer's treaty became all the more united in their quest to prevent any American settlements northwest of the Ohio River from ever happening. Although the treaty, this treaty did go through, and I'll have to tell you more at another time, Governor St. Clair and Senior Officer Josiah Harmer had underestimated or taken lightly all things left vulnerable. So in other words, they think they've made peace and they think they've gotten everything they've wanted. What they didn't realize was that for all those Indian tribes who had not attended, they were the ones that were going to have the last um, the last say. And those Indian tribes that didn't attend far outweighed those whom did attend. What did uh, New England speculators and settlers see themselves representing within the Northwest Territory? They saw themselves uh, representing the following. Order, or I should say structure, to civility, a.k.a. showing decency to kindness, along with showing fair and impartial treatment towards Indian tribes whom they came into contact with. Well, I, you know, if you are a, a New England speculator and settler, then that's the way you certainly want to uh, come across. You want to come across being fair. You want to be able to um, prove that, um, okay, we can come in here and move west, but we can also try to find a way to live. Um, we can also try to find some uh, meaningful way to live uh, coexistingly with one another. However, uh, the Indians see this differently. Okay, yes, if the Indians know they're being treated politely, they've seen this from time to time. Yes, we see some Europeans coming in here thinking they know everything there is to know about our way of life. But what we know for sure is that they aren't really here to establish relations. The relations they want to establish with us are going to be short-term. But what we do know is that come for the long term, they want to find solutions that will rid us, that will, that will completely rid us of even uh, being allowed to set a foot here no more. In other words, Europeans want our land. And not only do they want the land, they want to expand it to where the land will go even further westward of where they've already established. So for the Indians, they see the invasion of the New England speculators and settlers, regardless of the size and number, as an all-out threat to their stability, existence, survivalhood. The Indians are prepared to do whatever is required in keeping their land out of the hands from invasive peoples. Of course, when I think of invasive peoples this at this particular time, you know, we can say Europeans... But we can also say that after uh, after the time George Washington first officially becomes president, you know the United States has a new new kind of government, a republic. So now the um, Indians along the Northwest are viewing not only just European settlers as invasive people, but U.S. government officials as invasive. In other words, we know what all these parties want. They want land. And they want our land. They don't want they don't want the, 
the cheapest or the low level or low quality land. They want the best quality of land and meaning that it's going to interfere with our, with our dwellings and not just with our dwellings and where we're already settled, but also the land that we own. In other words, the Indians already know what the government's trying to do, and that is to uh, take away their land once and for all. Even if it means doing treaties point from point A to point B, you know, treaties alone, yes, they may look great, but they do lose their luster when it affects, you know, people uh, more so than what is written on paper. The first American regiment was, um, well, before I get into the first American regiment, I should say that um, that for the Indians, they are basically prepared to do whatever was required. And yes, and keeping their land out of the hands from any any from anybody considered invasive, being European settlers to government officials, even if it means losing their land by fighting like true warriors. So in other words, we're not just going to put up our hands and surrender and say, here, take our land, we'll just go somewhere else where you can't bother us anymore. No, if it means having to go to war to fight the government, just to preserve our way of life, then we will do so. We will fight without any, without any excuses. But if we do lose our land, heaven forbid we do, then we've lost it by fighting, by still having fought as true warriors. In other words, we didn't leave anything on the table to chance. So for the 1st American Regiment, they are stationed along the frontier as a means for protecting settlers, but also to help make easier the surveying and selling of land in the Northwest. In June of 1789, I found this to be really, really powerful, and I'm not going to I'm only going to tell you what I know is appropriate to tell you, but um, I kept out a lot of the other stuff because it was graphic. But in June of 1789, a group of um, soldiers from the 1st Regiment, while keeping watch over the Wabash Valley, they came across a dead soldier's body. The body was badly uh, mutilated. And I think most of you, when you hear the word mutilated, that we're not talking, um, we're talking that somebody died a, a horrific death. And the Indians, um, uh, the Indians uh, killed this soldier, but they didn't, you know, just shoot him down like, you know, cops and like cowboys and Indians. We'll put it that way, folks. That, that was not how it happened. I mean, they not only shot him, but they, um, they slaughtered him. And that's what Indians did uh, to Europeans, even in the early years of European, um, of uh, European uh, attempted uh, European establishments prior to uh, the first successful one that uh, happened, as we know, in uh, present-day uh, Jamestown, Virginia. But many other uh, previous attempts had uh, gone so bad to where Indians um, massacred um Europeans um, to the point where they um, to the point where by massacring them they it was meant to serve as a message that look you're not welcomed into our territory you're an invasive species we know why you're here that is to take our land and you're here to basically uh, push us as far west as you can to where uh, to where our status no longer becomes relevant so yes believe it or not folks uh, Europeans 
I mean, yes, disease sadly was a, was the number one killer of Indian civilizations, but even warfare had its uh, profound consequences and in how Indians uh, not only um, attacked um, European uh, villages, but how they went about um, how they went about killing um, Europeans as well. But that's not to say that the Europeans uh, weren't um, perfect on their end or saints on their end. Both parties were. Um, we're very uh, nasty towards one another, uh, but we do. We just have to be reminded that just because um, Europeans lived in a settlement, it didn't mean that they and the Indians were always on the best of terms. Whatever peace there was, it was only for you know a short uh, period of time. So sadly, this uh, soldier that the uh, that a group from the first regiment encountered uh, was um, was badly um, mutilated. By Indians not far by. The U.S. simply is now in a situation where force in the form of warfare might have to be considered uh, versus uh, versus uh, pursuing any other um, means of uh, diplomacy actions. It's one thing to engage in an act of diplomacy, but now all of a sudden, if it's if it means that one side is killing um, the other then uh, talks of uh, further talks of diplomacy might have to be put to a halt. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast uh, episode, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time with you all. And when I, when I am on the air again next, we will begin the first of a two-part series called The United States Invades Ohio. Well, haven't we already been somewhat invading Ohio? <laughs> you could say so, but perhaps... As we get into this uh, two-part series on the United States in, invades Ohio, we're going to learn more about just how big this um, invasion really is. Well, thank you for your time. As always, I look forward to being back on the air again. And no matter where you all live, uh, continue to stay safe. Take care for now.